Good evening. Goodbye Forever by Natchang Rinpoche, Chapter 16, Part 2. So, in your meditation, said Jimmy Rinpoche, you have to be on the knife edge between affirming and denying the relative world. You can't make this happen though. You can only prepare, because it's beyond contriving. At this point, I asked Jimmy Rinpoche whether he would be my teacher, but he answered, to be spontaneous with an open mind is good, but this, for you, is too soon, too early, too quick. You should go to the Himalayas first, to India and Nepal. You meet different lamas and hear teachings. If you don't find a lama, come back to me and I will be your teacher. But not before you have met other teachers. You must be sure you make the right choice. He then suggested that we sit in silence for a while. After maybe five minutes, he continued, In your life, you must remember that for the absolute, you have wisdom. And for the relative, you have compassion. Shakyamuni did not need to teach so that people would become wise. He taught to provide a method people could use to come to his understanding. So even though you may understand absolute truth, you need not be opposed to the outer relative religion, but find the best method that suits your personality. As this, at this, the interview was concluded and I walked off in the direction of Victoria Coach Station to catch my return to Farnham. I saw Chime Rinpoche once more after that and told him that I had a dilemma. I told him that at times I felt like a hypocrite as a Buddhist because I had too much desire. I wanted too many things and had some sense that even though I occasionally disapproved of myself for wanting things, I knew that I might never change. I felt that there was something in my personality that simply did not want to be desireless. Was there a practice that would quell my desire? Chimmy Rinpoche smiled. Look at me, he laughed. I have been meditating since I was a child, but I still desire things. I still desire good food to eat and clean clothes to wear. I desire a warm house and to be with good friends and family. The only difference between us is maybe that when I don't get these things, it doesn't matter very much. So in this way, maybe at first it begins to matter less. Maybe you already notice this. Somewhat, Rinpoche, I mean, I have been very sad about the deaths of my friends, but otherwise I don't get that upset when things don't go the way I want them to go. Sadness for death of friends, brother or sister or parents, this is natural. This is not too much attachment. 
but if never too upset when things are not what you desire, then already you have begun. Now all you need is to continue. There is much, much misunderstanding about meditation. People are thinking many rules, many rules about just being still, sitting quietly with attention. Yet when mind is still, awareness allows inner treasures to come. In stillness mind, there is no aggression. It is relaxed, joyous, compassionate and playful. These qualities exist already in everyone. Silent sitting simply allows them to manifest. You don't have to force yourself to be without desire. That is not the way. You will not be a monk, so there is no problem. Simply be as you are. Practice as you have already practiced. Then, no problem. Then, when art school is finished for this year, go to the Himalayas and see what you are finding. Then, maybe we will meet again, if it is necessary. The next day, I'd be back at Hatch Mill. I was happy to be at Hatchmill, even though I was eager to get to the Himalayas. Lama Chime Rinpoche, although he did not say a great deal, made the whole idea come alive. A real live Tibetan had suggested I should go to the Himalayas. Meeting a Tibetan, let alone a Tibetan incarnate Lama, in England at that time was like meeting King Solomon. Cleopatra, Leif Erikson, Boudicca, Barbara Strozzi or Leonardo da Vinci. The die was cast. I'd set out the following September. In the meanwhile, there was Hatch Mill. Being in this new environment where art was the raison d'etre threw me out of my habitual frames of reference. I expected to be haunted by Lindy, by Ron and Steve, but instead I found myself carried by a wave of creative verve, blown by the winds of wonder. It's not that I had no thoughts of loss. They were there, but they were there in an environment that demanded so much in terms of time and energetic absorption that loss was not what it once had been. Virginia Water School seemed remote. I noticed the sense of the summer just gone as belonging to a past decade. At first, this notion made me a little uneasy. Was there something wrong with me? Surely I should not be able to let go of past sorrows so very quickly. Of course, it was not long before I realised that the past was still with me. I could still shed a tear, but I could also let it wash through me. It was my choice whether I decided to indulge my sense of loss. My memories of Ron and Steve would always be cause for appreciation. But the rest of my life would have its own character and dynamics. 
I also realized that my life had changed quite radically from the ethos of being an elderly schoolboy to being a young adult art student. I'd felt like an adult from the age of 14, but the sense had been constrained by the secondary school environment. Now I was in a place where students and lecturers addressed each other by their first names. There were many mild shocks of that nature. They seemed desirably natural, but strikingly different from life up until that point. And Lindy? Where was she in all this? Well, she'd have to live with the choice she felt forced to make. I wished her well with her life and hoped she'd find in someone else whatever she found most valuable about me. Did I miss her? Yes. I wished it had worked out otherwise, but I also knew that brooding about it was futile. Only idiots mourned too long about what could not be altered. I'd recovered from the loss of Alice, Mr Love and Annalie, and I'd recover from the loss of Lindy. The year passed with a rapidity that was almost alarming. I worked hard, I played hard in terms of the social world of art school, and tied up as it was with staying late in the evenings, working on projects and talking with the others. I soon found myself in a relationship with a Scots lady called Hell, Helen McGilvery, and that had various ramifications, both concupiscent and convoluted. It began delightfully, but became increasingly arduous in the second term. I might say, hell hath no fury like Helen McGilvery when fine art is not the be-all and end-all of everything. It wasn't fury, however, merely obdurate insistence on purism. Hell was a fine art purist. I was a Buddhist bluesman and decidedly multidisciplinary in terms of the arts. I was not, in the end, Hell's angel. I had been when she first made her move on me, but I gradually became an encumbrance. She began it, and by the following early September, she ended it. I was somewhat sad about the end of the relationship, but it was an extremely short-lived sadness. By the end of our relationship, the fact that she wasn't Lindy was glaringly obvious. She wasn't Buddhist and she only had a passing interest in blues. She had no interest in classical or baroque music either. She had no interest even in exploring the notion of Buddhism. <clears throat> I never blamed her for her lack of interest in Buddhism, but she certainly took against me for not being as devoted to fine art painting as she was. By the end, I realised that Lindy was very far from forgotten. I missed her as much as I ever had. So much for non-attachment. So many events took place on the foundation year from 1970 to 1971. So many conversations. 
Even though I knew it was an illusion, to whatever extent, I enjoyed the texture of the illusion with rampant veracity. Being an art student had the same quality as being on stage with the Savage Cabbage Blues Band. But here, that quality of stage performance was everyday life. Everyone was some sort of star performer, but there was no sense of competition. You could only outshine others by working harder and longer and by never being complacent about the quality of the work produced. No one was interested in outshining anyone. The idea was deemed crass. Only Philistines and cretins competed. Now I was no longer absorbed with the W.B. Yeats, James Joyce, Aldous Huxley, Virginia Woolf, Shakespeare and Chaucer of English studies at school. I had more time to explore Buddhist books. Strangely enough, there were some authors I'd not discovered. Anagarika Govinda, Alexandra David Nail, and John Blofeld. These books were all far more readable than the books with which I'd struggled in previous years, even though I only saw Anagarika Govinda as reliable in terms of authenticity. I found Anagarika Govinda's books extremely helpful and felt inspired to follow his example. I read and reread Way of the White Clouds. Alexandra David Nail was too obsessed by the macabre and her books, although interesting and highly readable, were suspect even to me. John Blofeld's books were muddled and shallow after Anagarika Govinda. They were light on technical information after Evans Bents. From these books and other sources, I came to discover a wealth of literature on Tibet and realized that I had a great repository at my disposal. I therefore started ordering books from the library, being as I could not run to buying every book that took my interest. I decided to be canny in terms of what I decided to purchase. I'd read library copies first in order to establish whether owning a copy was essential. The books of Sir Charles Bell were interesting and added to my knowledge of Tibetan culture. And all told, I had a dozen books to absorb my attention when I was not engaged in my art school work or playing blues at the William Cobbett pub. With all this and Helen McGilvery, there was no time to dwell on the past, even though it percolated through from time to time when I was riding my motorcycle to and from Hatch Mill. I was soon looking back at art school from Sir Lindsay Parkinson's scaffolding yard in Aldershot, where I was living the life of a recluse. I simply worked all the hours available and read books in my spare time, waiting for the end of the monsoon when I could take the money I'd saved and head out to India. It was whilst I was working at Sir Lindsay Parkinson's scaffolding yard that I ploughed my way through Theory and Practice of the Mandala and other works by Giuseppe Tucci. I had nothing to do when I was awake and not working or sleeping other than meditate and study 
So that became my life for a while. Through the books of Giuseppe Tucci, I discovered Fosco Maraini, whose book, Secret Tibet, was a fascinating insight, full of marvellous photographs. Books just kept coming to light from references in the books I'd initially found. Each led to the next. Not all of them were that marvellous, but I felt that every trail was worth following. Other books I found were Heinrich Harrer's Seven Years in Tibet and A.H. Savage Landor's Obscure Tone in the Forbidden Land. So many books, so little time. I had a whole list going after a while. I knew that much of the list would have to wait to some future point as time was running out. Most of these books were out of print and could only be ordered through libraries. But I had been told that there were antiquarian book finding services of which I could avail myself should I ever have funds to cover the growing number of books I wished to have as a reference library. I made many notes, but the more notes I wrote, the more questions I had. I made a trip to Edinburgh before I left Britain. That's where Helen McGilvray had gone. She had a place in fine art at the art school there. I hadn't been entirely aware that our relationship was over when I set out, but it was explained within 10 minutes of my arrival. She'd gotten painfully thin from the slightly rounded lady I'd first met. She had taken to smoking gouloise, a sure cure for any romance. Smoking was anathema to me, as she well understood, and so keeping my distance was evidently implied. In terms of her emaciation, I suspected she'd taken to something that dampened her appetite. Other than contracted pupils, however, I had no evidence. I thought I was sad at first, but my sadness was illusory. We both knew we were unsuited. We both knew that we weren't even friends. We had almost nothing in common other than we'd once attended the foundation year at Farnham Art School. I took it more or less in my stride. I left early in the morning before hell had awoken. There's no need to say goodbye when it's goodbye forever. <laughs>